Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Armed Med Ed podcast. This will be a way for us to connect you with some new ideas in between our sessions. We know that it can be hard to enter into the world of medical education research. And so we want to make sure that you don't feel so lonely in your pursuits. We'll be bringing you a community of scholars who want to share their wisdom with you in this part of our community of practice. So listen up. Okay. All right, um, so thank you guys for joining us. This is Sam Clark from Armed Med Ed, and I'm speaking with my colleague, uh, Jim Holmes, who is the immediate past president, as in this morning, past president uh, of SAEM, um, also uh, NIH-funded researcher, head of NIH study sections, um, really a veteran researcher uh, and someone whose office is close to mine. And so I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk with me a little bit about um, NIH biosketches. Sure, thank you very much, uh, Sam. I really appreciate it. Uh, happy to discuss uh, a very important topic uh, related to your grant. It, it is something that I think people sometimes don't realize how much impact the biosketch can have. Yeah, yeah, so, and exactly why we wanted to talk with someone like you about it. Um, so, as you know, for the armed med ed course, um, most of the participants are relative novices when it comes to writing grants, um, and some may not have ever encountered the NIH biosketch um, previously. And so, we'll keep this conversation fairly basic, fairly broad, kind of talking about the why behind the biosketch and how to make it compelling. Um, because I think, for, especially for those that haven't encountered this before, it may get kind of short shrift. People are thinking about their grant science and not so much about marketing themselves to potential funders and not thinking in kind of the persuasive way that you need to uh, when trying to, to be the person at the, at the top of the pile. Yeah, you, you said the exact word that's important to, to know about the biosketch. It is marketing yourself. And you want in the biosketch to make sure the reviewers for the grants believe that you are the person to do this research. Okay, okay. And, and I think in a way you've, you've started to answer my, my first question for you, which is really kind of the purpose of the NIH biosketch. How is it different from a CV um, why do you need to have a document like this as part of your grant application? Yeah, it's, um, it is the process by which you tell the reviewers who you are and what your skill set is such that you can compete, uh, com successfully complete this grant. And so it has information about your prior training, where you got your degrees. Um, it has a section for a personal statement that you really talk about how what you've done, um, what your skills are and how you can do the work that you're proposing. It talks about your positions and honors and then kind of the final section is a contribution to science. And um, basically it's a, a way for you to tell the reviewers different aspects that you have done that have made impacts on science. And it's, it's not necessarily just important for your grant. I'm, you might be a co-investigator on someone else's grant, and you're gonna to have to submit a biosketch for that as well. 
So, so regardless of whether you're the PI on the grant or you are going to be a co-investigator on someone else's grant, um, uh, you're you're going to have to submit a biosketch. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so, whereas the you know the curriculum vitae, especially in the in the academic world, is kind of the long list of everything. Here, this is something that's kind of more tailored to the project, um, and like we talked about, is meant to be persuasive. Yeah, this is this is totally for the reviewer, you to convince the reviewer that you you can do it right. The CV has a bunch of extra stuff that that isn't essentially necessary to convince the reviewer that you can do it. All that stuff, the fluff of the CD CV is cut out of the bio sketch such that you just have the important information. Got it. Um, this may seem like a silly question, but um, why do non-NIH funding agencies like SAM require an NIH-style biosketch? Yeah, it's a good question, um, and it's uh, it's probably for two reasons. Um, I sat on the SAM Grants Committee a long time ago, and, um, and when we discussed this, uh, most of the for SAM and a lot of the foundations, a lot of times their goal is to provide the investigator with some initial funds to get their career going. For instance, most of SAM's grants are targeted for junior investigators. And the ultimate goal is to, um, is, is to get that investigator to NIH funding. And so if you just get them familiar with the NIH biosketch from the start, they, they get some uh, familiarity with the, the process and understand it. And so it makes it easier that when you then go for your next, um, next grant that hopefully is for the, from the NIH. Interesting. So it's kind of replicating in a, in a smaller version the process that they would go through um, as they move towards the, the, the formal NIH. Exactly. Interesting. Um, for someone who is, say, totally in the dark about this and has never done an NIH biosketch before, where would you suggest they turn? Yeah, that's a very good question and key to the whole success of the process. The first thing you need to do is Google NIH biosketch and go to the NIH website, which will have the most up-to-date biosketch samples. The NIH is also very good about having um, uh, examples of an NIH biosketch for you to look at, as well as giving very detailed instructions on how to fill out the, the biosketch. So they there is plenty of information quickly found on the NIH web, website about how to complete uh, the biosketch. It, it, it takes all the guessing out uh, of it. And, and it's important to look whenever you do it because the NIH does occasionally change what is required and, and the formatting of the biosketch. It happens every few years. Um, and so every time I'm getting ready to submit a grant, I always check to make sure that um, the changes, there's there's no changes or or if there are changes that occur that we, we follow the rules. In fact, it's, you know, this is May of 2021 and the NIH is instituting a change in the biosketch for May 25th, 2021, that will have to be done by everybody, every grant that's submitted by January 2022. Mm -hmm. So we're right now in one of those, those change uh, times. Yeah, that's a really important thing, I think, for people to be aware of. And, and with this upcoming change, one of the sections that previously was there describing kind of current funding is going away, correct? Yes, exactly. They are they are taking out the current funding sections, kind of section D from prior biosketches, um, and uh, they 
people are, are going to put that in their personal statement, kind of what their current funding is, talk about it. And then uh, the NIH also finds out what, if you are fortunate enough to get funded, you get a just-in-time request, which then um, the NIH uh, basically asks you for what all your current funding currently is. And so it was kind of a little bit duplicative where, you know, they're asking for it in the biosketch and then they ask you again if you're about to get funding. And I, I think that's probably why it ultimately got taken out. But people, you know, people want to tell the reviewers what their funding is. Um, and so people will put it in their personal statement now to basically say, you know, I have funding from this institute or this institute so that the reviewer knows that you have some funding. Got it. Yeah, it's not that they don't care. It's just that it's nested into one of the other sections. Got exactly. It. Okay. So in a bit, we'll talk about the, the three main sections of the bio sketch um, in terms of kind of the narrative, um, since I think, you know, listing your um, educational history and stuff like that is, is self-explanatory. Um, but first, could you provide a comment since you have reviewed a ton of grants, um, how heavily do you weigh the biosketch when you're reviewing a grant application, whether it's for the PI or, or a co-investigator? Yeah, this is also very important because um, the, the biosketch can, can help and hurt you. And so I, I, I obviously as the reviewer, you're, you're going to look at everyone's bio sketches that are listed in the grant. Now, sometimes there can be a lot of them if it's a, uh, a training grant, um, but for, for individual training grants or project grants, there's usually, you know, four or five bio sketches um, to look at. And I, I look at all of them. I look at the PIs the closest. Um, and if the, some of the co-investigators are providing specific expertise, I want to make sure that in their bio sketch, they convince me they have that particular expertise. Mm -hmm. So it's something like if I'm reading and they are proposing a project that involves, a, say, one of the specific aims is a cost-effective analysis of the trial that's being done in AIM-1, and so AIM-2 is the cost-effective analysis of AIM-1. They need to make sure that they have someone on their team that is can do a cost-effective analysis, and then that person in their bio sketch explains to me why how they know how to do a cost-effective uh, analysis. Right? I took this course. I've done eight different cost-effective analyses before on randomized controlled trials. I am perfectly positioned to do the cost-effective uh, analysis on this particular trial. Nice. Okay. So it really can make a difference. It seems like in terms of persuading you that that the investigator and or the team kind of have the necessary skills and experience to successfully complete the project. Absolutely. Okay, okay. Um, well, why don't we take a look at the three main kind of narrative sections of the biosketch in turn. And here I'm thinking it would be useful for us to imagine kind of two potential biosketch authors. One would be a person who has some experience, maybe has been in a faculty role for five years or more, has had some leadership experience, has done some, some um, scholarly work, has a, a, you know, some publications and so forth, um, but here is, is now kind of pivoting to uh, embark on a program of education research. Um, and then maybe as a second scenario, a more junior person, so someone who is a year or two out of fellowship, um, is really just kind of starting to get their feet under them as a researcher, has 
maybe done a few publications and so forth, but um, has has kind of a shorter CV. Sure. Uh, if we were to start with the personal statement, um, what what sort of advice would you have first for the person who has done some things already uh, to craft a personal statement that's compelling? Well, the personal statement is that, at least from the biosketch, that's where I think the the real money is. Okay. Um, this is basically where you state where why you are well suited for whatever role it is on your on the project, whether you're the PI or a co-investigator um, on the project. You're basically saying this is why I am the person um, that can do this particular uh, issue. Um, so you talk maybe about what your prior training is, what your uh, prior uh, work on this specific topic or related topics would be. Um, like we the cost effective analysis example I just used, you would talk about in that in the personal statement how you have that technical expertise on cost effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe if it's you know you're going to mentor, you're the mentor on someone else's project, you talk about how your prior experience with mentoring is and and your mentees have gone on to all this kind of success. Um, and so, you know, it's this is the important point to, to basically describe what your training is, has been, what your kind of prior experience is, and how you are the person to make this project happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the things that was recently added to this by the NIH was you can cite um, four of your publications or research products in your prior, with your prior work. And so, um, that's a uh, that's a way to do that in in that particular area. Now you can't you can't put hyperlinks in there, so that's a no no. Um, okay. But uh, but you can provide your other um, kind of the other references of your of your major work that you cite in your personal statement. Okay, and so am I correct in understanding that you can kind of draw from multiple sources? You can kind of refer to. Um, previous training that you've had that's germane to the project. You can refer to previous like funded work that you've done or or specific publications if they if they kind of contribute to the the specific narrative that you're the person for this job. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So, for instance, if I'm going to propose a project um, to um, prospectively enroll a sample of patients to derive a clinical decision rule on who should get a head CT after blunt head trauma. And I've, and I've done this before, right? Um, I might talk about prior single center studies that I have done or been involved with that do that exact process. And now it's gonna be a multi-center study. So based upon the prior work that I've done, I, I've shown the ability to enroll patients with blunt head trauma. And now we're gonna enroll them at all kinds of sites. Got it. That's great. So now imagining this the same applicant is much much more junior you know again someone who's you know just out of fellowship has maybe done a few publications and is kind of staring at the blank page saying what do i say about myself um what advice would you give that person yeah so so that person is probably applying for a grant from a foundation initially not necessarily the nih although maybe they are applying for a what would be known as an F, say, F32 award, which would be 
essentially a research fellowship type um, coming out of residency type of award. Mm -hmm. And so maybe they only have a couple of publications, but in that personal statement, um, they they can reference or they, they need to convince the reviewer that they're committed to this particular project. You know, I want to be a researcher. I've dreamed, you know, when I woke up as a four-year-old, I said, my future is in emergency care research. And this is yeah. now I'm, I'm here, right? You want to convince them that this is, this is the, this is the time. And, and, you know, you can say in this that, you know, I'm, I've, I've only published two papers. They've been on X, Y, and Z or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, this is the start of my career. I now am committed to this. I am seeking additional training so that I can become this person that I want to be. Got it. So, so it's okay to be kind of aspirational or just describe who you, who you want to be um, rather than who you are. Yes, if if especially if you are junior and this is kind of your first project. Now, most of the time you're junior and you're going to be in coming in as a co-investigator. And um, but but if you're the PI and you're junior, like an F32 award, you would want to say, you know, this is this is what I want to do and this is what I'm going to become and this project is going to allow me to become this and I am completely con committed. You want to convince the reviewer you're committed. Yeah, got it. Okay. Um... Let's turn next to the second section, which describes positions, scientific appointments, and awards. And we'll kind of, again, break it down into the person who has some things to choose from and the person who is, is just starting out. So it, the more kind of senior person who has a few, you know, a number of things on their CV that they might select, um, any advice on, on what things catch your eye as a reviewer, you know, that, that would make you think like, yeah, this person has has some credibility. Yeah, I think this is probably the least most important of the bio sketch. Um, you know, they you want to make sure that they have, you know, they're at the appropriate location for what they're um, uh, or position for what they're proposing. Um, if you've had prior awards, this is a good time to say uh, say that, um, so that you know you can kind of still build the belief that you you know are this great person that you know the reviewer is going to want to fund this person, um, and so it's kind of the to my, to be honest, it's the least most important as far as I'm concerned, but hmm. but it is um, it's important, right? And so you know maybe if you're applying. Um, you know, there's a section on it. It's, it includes like positions and employment, other experiences and professional memberships, and then honors. Um, you want to make sure, like, if you're applying to a particular foundation, you better make sure you're a member of that foundation and mm. that you, you list that <laughs> in your bio sketch, right? If you're going to apply to SAM Foundation, and right. in, in that section, you better say, you know, SAM membership, you know, yeah. and, and how date. long you've been a member. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. That's a really good point. Uh, okay, and for a more junior person um, who who again you know may have fewer things to choose from, should they should they list the Eagle Scout badge or are there are there things that like a junior person should can you know can can claim that that would make you say like yeah okay this person is is on the right path. Yeah, I, it's um, you know high school students and undergraduates may be involved in this, uh, you know, applying for something. Um, so they can include prior positions if they that that they've had in awards. That's you know you realize that if you're especially if you're the PI, the particular grant that you're applying for, um, 
you're probably going against similar people in similar positions, right? So if you're applying for an F-32, basically you're coming right out of residency. You're only applying against people that are also just coming out of residency. Mm -hmm. So you're not applying against people that are going for R01s and have had R01s. Mm -hmm. And so realize that if your biosketch is a little slim in this area, because, you know, all you have is, you know, a residency program and you got, you know, save of the month award and maybe best airway person, you know, put those in there sure. To, sure. to convince the reviewer that you, you know, you're, People recognize that you have skills and, and and good qualities to convince the reviewer you can do this. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, contributions to science. Uh, again, we'll kind of break it down. So, so here, um, again, you know, this cannot be an exhaustive list of your your prior publications. Correct. This you're only allowed a handful. That is um, correct. And so. You know, it, it, it seems easy enough for the person that has done some prior uh, published work in a particular area, you know, that's, that's easy enough. But say for those that, um, oh, you know, again, they, you know, they're, they're more junior, they've been involved in a handful of projects, but ones that don't speak, you know, per, perhaps to that particular project, or someone has done some publishing in an area that's different from the one that they're applying in now. Um, how best to navigate that? Yeah, so this is a this is one you definitely need to read the instructions because this is um, it's relatively new. It's it's changed a couple times, um, and so you can list up to five different contributions to science. Um, and in those sections, you kind of you can list up to I believe it's four papers for each um or for publications for each it can be up to about a half of page including the the references so you are limited with how much space you can use for each of your contribution to science mm -hmm. um but uh you may only want to list two or three um or or maybe only one if you're like a beginning investigator so mm -hmm. so it does depend upon where you are like for for instance for me my biosketch has four contributions to science to basically highlight kind of four of the areas that I've really focused much of my research on. And it may be nothing to do with what this particular um, grant proposal would be for me, but mm -hmm. it's something I've previously done. And it convinces the reviewer that yes, you can focus on a particular topic, you can be publish multiple aspects of that, and you can change the science for that and that's important so especially if you have done something to um that's kind of changed the way we do things or the way we think about things it's important to say that i published this study that enrolled you know 500 patients on uh when to perform a lumbar puncture uh in worst headache of the life and the data from that showed that you could decrease 20% your lumbar punctures that they were unnecessarily being performed. It mm -hmm. has now changed how we practice whereby fewer people get lumbar punctures. In education research, it might be something we, I previously studied this particular technique. Here are the, these pub, there are three publications that we have on this particular technique. People now use this technique in the emergency department to um, educate their learners. Right. I mean, that's it. This is an important place where you can convince the reviewer that your prior work has has made a difference. Yeah. OK. So pointing to evidence of impact um, is is compelling in addition to having demonstrated perhaps a track record or you've, you've you know worked on multiple projects in an area. But it, it sounds like 
some breadth here is okay as well to say that you you've kind of worked on multiple things yeah that that's totally fine right it, it does not necessarily need to be related to the project that you're proposing most of my most people's work it's somewhere in that area but that's not always the case in fact um it's interesting because i just reviewed someone's biosketch today um and they are a, a thoracic surgeon and so what their their proposals about has nothing to do with a couple of their contributions to science, their, their sections, right? One of, one of their contributions to science is, is uh, their prior work on uh, thoracic trauma, but it has nothing to do with the particular project proposal that they're doing. But, you know, there's, there's these multiple pay, uh, pu publications on it, and it convinces the re reviewer they can get things done. That's great. Um, so from here, if we could broaden out again a little bit, and if I could ask you, are, can you think of like, what are some don'ts for biosketches? Are there things that when you read a biosketch, you think, boy, that, that, that actually hurt rather than helped a person's argument? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the first thing I always say is, um, is make sure there's like no, and this is true for the whole grant, is make sure there's no grammar mistakes and, and no misspelled words. I mean, if you haven't done a spelling and grammar check on your grant before you submit it in, you might as well not submit it. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that'll get a reviewer in a bad mood fairly quickly. And the last thing you want to do when the reviewer is about to give you your final score for your grant is have them in a bad mood because of the way something you did, <laughs> right? It's just, it's, it's not going to help you. Right. Um, and so, you know, spelling, grammar, I mean, simple stuff, but you'd be surprised, right? I mean, I've, over the years, I've seen stuff that is, that is remarkably messed up. Um, <laughs> so, so, you know, make sure there's no spelling, no grammar, make sure you follow the, um, the, the instructions. The NIH is fairly strict. If you don't follow the instructions, they'll, they'll send your grant back frequently. Mm -hmm. Foundations aren't as strict usually. Um, you know, I, I run a KL2 program here at UC Davis and, and uh, we had an application a few years ago that clearly didn't follow the instructions and we went ahead and reviewed it. Uh, they, it was a pretty good proposal, um, but they weren't getting funded purely from the start because their six page requirement was nine pages, right? Mm -hmm. So we went ahead and gave them feedback and, and reviewed it, but it was automatically out. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, you just, you got to follow the, the instructions, right? If, if the bio sketch can only be four pages and you turn in a seven page bio sketch, that is, that's just the NIH will send it back to you. Um, right. It'll just upset the reviewers for the foundation. Got it. Do you think there's, you know, when looking at the personal statement and things like that, is there, to you, is there like a target length, you know, that, that you think is, is, is best? Yeah, it's, it's generally about, um, I'd say between 10 to 20 lines. Um, yeah. It's essentially one paragraph. It's yeah. a long paragraph, um, yeah. but 10, 15 lines um, is usually about, it's about half a page when you, when you put in the um, single space, when you put in the, the references as well. Okay. And for the second section, I mean, again, is there a danger in being like overly granular, you know, or listing too much stuff? Is it, you know, is it, can you kind of lose the the greater message if if you include too much particular detail? Yeah, I mean, I again, it's the section B, the kind of the position and honor section. It's going to be a half a page probably. Okay. Um, 
you don't want to put in minutiae that would take away. I mean, if you have good things like, you know, I was the SAM Young Investigator Award winner. Um, you, you'd want to put that. But if you got like save of the day and you're going to put in like seven save of the day and right. you might not want to yeah. overshadow that, you might want to highlight SAM yeah. Young Investigator Award and not save of the day. That makes sense. Um, one final question that occurs to me, um, you know, so once you've, you've created your bio sketch and, and, you know, you've used it for a particular project, how often do you modify yours? You know, like if you are going to be, say, a co-investigator on someone else's project or you're applying for something that's, you know, kind of in a different area, how much do you tweak your bio sketch from application to application? Yeah, it, it depends. I, I don't really tweak the the position and honors and contribution to science that much unless I have something new that's come out um, subsequently. Um, but the personal statement gets gets adjusted depending upon what it is. And so, you know, I have the basic stuff that I said I say, right, I have, um, you know, long history of emergency care research, primarily focused on trauma, done, done both clinical trials and observational studies, including studies that have enrolled over 40,000 patients in multi multiple centers, right? So I kind of, you know, here's what I do. This particular study is to study transexemic acid in the emergency department. Um, my experience as a clinical trialist enrolling patients into clinical trials in the emergency department will be um, will be very useful in this. I, I have the prior um, experience to do it and will be successful. Now, if it's a training grant, I might focus on the fact that I started a, an emergency medicine residency fellowship, uh, emergency medicine research uh, fellowship program. Um, I've directed a K-12 program. I currently direct a KL-2 program that has trains uh, scholars from a broad uh, spectrum. And, and then I ended and said, you know, these experiences position me perfectly to lead this particular training program or my prior experiences and training lead me to uh, be well positioned to lead this study. That's great. Okay, that makes but, sense. But, but I always end the personal statement with one or two sentences of how my prior stuff, the stuff I've talked about above, now mm -hmm. leads me to be well positioned to right. do what is required in this, this proposal. So that's that's the last thing the reviewer reads in this in that when he finishes my personal statement. Yeah, it all leads to this thing. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Okay, Jim, thank you so much for your time. Um, this has been really, really useful, um, and thank you for all your contributions to SAEM. Uh, it you know it occurs to me in having this conversation that the R Med Ed course um, came into being under your leadership, and um, it's something that we are enormously grateful for. So thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I've been very supportive of it. I think that you and um, the other uh, leaders in the program, especially Wendy, um, have been, you know, instrumental for this uh, important program uh, in emergency medicine. We, re we really appreciate the work that all of y'all are doing. Thank you very much. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Have a good day. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning in to this edition of the Armed Meded Podcast. Thank you to Lainey Yaris, Wendy Coates, and all of the other instructors within the Armed Meded circuit for making sure that we're always upping our game in medical education research. And thank you to Scott Holmes for supplying the music. We really enjoyed the tunes. <laughs>